Hey Coffee and Crimers, welcome to Season 1, Episode 1. I'm your host, Belle Fagan, and I'm so happy to have you here with me. On this episode, we're going to delve into the tragic kidnap and subsequent murder of 21-year-old Denise Amber Lee. Now, if you're a regular listener of True Crime, you'll know that a lot of kidnap slash murder cases need a thorough investigation to find out who the perpetrator is or was. Following leads, conducting hours of interview, all of that stuff. Well, Denise's case was far from that. Police knew very quickly who had taken Denise and even what vehicle they were in. 911 even spoke to Denise herself and a race against time began. Now, you are going to see as we go through this case that, boy, did she fight for her life. And she did absolutely everything that she could possibly do and more. But sadly, her incredible actions weren't enough to save her. Thursday, January 17th, 2008, had started out like every other day. Young mum, 21-year-old Denise, was at home with her two young boys, two-year-old Noah and six-month-old Adam. She was married to her high school sweetheart, Nathan, and she truly was living the life that she'd only ever wanted, to be a wife and a mother. Now, yes, they were young, and they were polar opposites of each other, but this young family really, really were happy. At high school, Denise had been the quiet bookworm and Nathan the loud, outgoing football jock. But you know what? It really did work for them and they were the perfect match. Now, their first Valentine's Day together actually only came a few weeks after they began dating. And Nathan bought Denise a heart-shaped ring. Nothing fancy. Remember, they were still at high school. It was a simple $40 ring. But it was a ring that Denise never took off, even after getting married and having an engagement and wedding ring. Truly, it was the sentimental value that just literally meant everything to her. Now, this ring would also play a part in ensuring her killer was identified. So after getting married and having the boys, they settled in the area of Northport in Florida. Now, her mum and dad weren't actually particularly keen about the remote location of the house that they found, but it really was all they could afford because Nathan was working three jobs to support the four of them, which allowed Denise to be a full-time stay-at-home mum. Yeah, their finances were tight, but it didn't matter because they had each other and their boys and all they were looking forward to was just growing old together. Now that morning, Nathan left for work early, leaving Denise and the boys in bed. At 11.09am, he called her like he often would do on his lunch break, just to have a quick chat and check up on her and the kids and that they were all doing okay. She picked up and she told him that she was out on the back porch cutting Noah's hair. It was a brief call, mainly about the weather, with Nathan suggesting that she open the windows when she told him how stuffy the house was. She let him know that she had and they soon hung up the phone. That morning, Nathan left for work early, leaving Denise and the boys in bed. At 11.09am, he called her like he often would do on his lunch break, just to have a quick chat and check up on her and the kids and that they were all doing okay. When she picked up, she told him that she was out on the back porch cutting Noah's hair. It was a brief call, mainly about the weather, with Nathan suggesting that she open the windows when she told him how stuffy the house was. She let him know that she had, and they soon hung up the phone. Now, Nathan would often call a few times in the day, but this particular day was a busy one for him, and it wasn't until he'd finished at around 3pm that he was finally able to call again. He dialed her number to let her know that he was headed home and would see her soon, but there was no answer. During that 25-minute drive home, he called Denise eight times. Each time, it just kept ringing out. 
Although it would have been unusual for Denise to have been out with the kids at that time, he didn't want to let his mind run wild. Around 3.30pm, he walked into the house and the first thing he noticed was that the windows that Denise had told him that she'd opened were now closed. But they weren't just closed, they were closed and not latched shut, which is again something Denise would never have done. He saw her phone and her keys on the chair and then heard his boys. Both the boys were in the same crib together. Another thing that Denise would never, ever do. Knowing she wouldn't leave the boys alone, he lost it. He immediately called 911 and told the operator that his wife were missing and that his two boys were alone in the house when he arrived home. Officers were immediately dispatched. The next call he made was to Denise's dad, Rick Goff. Now, Rick was actually a sergeant in the neighbouring county's sheriff department, Charlotte County. He answered Nathan's call by saying, So, are you guys coming? It turned out that he too had been trying to get hold of Denise that day to see if the four of them wanted to come over and have dinner. And he assumed that when Nathan rang, it was to respond to the message he'd left. Within 30 minutes, Rick's team had joined forces with the Sarasota County Sheriff's Department, whose jurisdiction covered where Denise and Nathan lived. He organised a helicopter to canvas the area and police dogs. Now, a lot of times we know authorities will go and knock on the doors in the neighbourhood, but usually it doesn't really uncover very much. But in Denise's case, it paid off. To their surprise, someone had seen something. It was Denise's neighbour, Jennifer Eckhart. Now, she told police that around 2.30pm, she'd seen a car, a green Camaro, going up and down the road. Now, the reason she noticed it was because it kept creeping up and down the road super slow. It circled the street four or five times and then pulled into Denise's driveway. Ten minutes later, Jennifer came outside her house just in time to see the car drive off. Now, she didn't see Denise, she just saw a white man driving. Denise's dad, Rick, immediately put out a bolo. So if you're not clear on what a bolo is, it stands for a be on the lookout alert that just informs police officers that there is someone or something they need to be on the lookout for. And on this day, it was a green Chevy Camaro being driven by a white male. At 6.14pm, another break in the case came. A call came through to 911 from Denise herself. This is just unbelievable. And this is what I mean, at the, like at the start when I said she just did everything she could. This is just one of the acts that just show how amazing she was and determined to make it home to Nathan and her babies. While the male driver drove through the local streets, Denise had been able to slide his phone toward her and call 911. Now, when the dispatcher connected to the call, Denise obviously couldn't identify herself or tell the dispatcher outright what was happening. So instead, she had a carefully constructed conversation with her abductor. Now, through this conversation, she relayed as much information as she could to help the 911 dispatcher, including her name. Now, the transcript of the call shows Denise saying to him, please, I just want to go home. Please let me go. My name is Denise. I'm married to a beautiful husband and I just want to see my kids again. Please, please. She manages to stay on that call for seven minutes before her kidnapper realises his phone is missing and the line goes dead. Now, ordinarily, seven minutes would be plenty of time for police to trace the location of the call. 
but devastatingly for Nathan and Denise's parents, the phone was a burner. But they were able to identify the owner of the phone, Michael King. Michael King was a 36-year-old unemployed plumber who also lived in Northport, not far from Denise and Nathan. He was recently divorced and had a 12-year-old son and was facing foreclosure on his home, so things were not really on the up and up for Michael. Police raced to Michael's home, but neither he nor Denise were there. At 6.23, a third 911 call about Denise came in. So this is the third, the first being Nathan's, the second being Denise herself, and now the third from 17-year-old Sabrina Muxlow. She told operators that her dad had seen a girl jump out of his cousin's car and his cousin had shoved her back in. This cousin was Harold Muxlow. After kidnapping Denise in broad daylight, Michael had driven to Harold's home to ask to borrow a shovel, a gas can and a flashlight. He had told Harold he needed them because his lawnmower had stopped working and was stuck outside the front of his house. Now, Denise, who had been tied up with duct tape in the back seat, had managed to free herself and jump out of the car, screaming at Harold to call police. Harold asked Michael what the heck was going on, but Michael told him not to worry about it, forced Denise back in the car and sped off. Now, Harold did hurry inside and told his daughter Sabrina to call 911. While Sabrina did that, Harold actually drove over to Michael's house to see if, in fact, there was a lawnmower out front. There wasn't. Now, I'm not really sure why, but when Harold then placed what would be the fourth 911 call, rather than be upfront about who he was, he tried to be anonymous and super cagey about who he was. Like, the 911 call just sounded really, really bizarre. Now, he did give them a full description of Michael's car and that the female inside appeared to be being held against her will. A few minutes later, the fifth and what would be the final 911 call was made. I mean, this literally blows my mind. When have you ever heard of five calls being made about a kidnap victim in such short succession of each other? A huge helicopter search and a manhunt, all still in the local area, but yet Denise not being found. The final call to 911 should have been the one. The one that saved Denise's life and brought her back to Nathan, Noah and Adam. And here's why. At 6.30pm, a woman named Jane Kowalski was driving along a local highway, Highway 41. She was on the phone to her sister and as she pulled up to the traffic lights, a Camaro pulled up by her side in the next lane. At that moment, she heard screaming like she had never heard in all of her life. It was so loud that even her sister on the other end of the phone could hear it. Now, she realised it was coming from the car next to her. She looked over and made eye contact with the man driving as he used one hand to push something down in the back seat. Jane said that after he pushed that something down, a hand came up and started slapping so loudly on the window. She immediately got off the call with her sister and dialed 911. Now, she told police that she believed that she was witnessing a child abduction in progress. The scream had been so piercing and young sounding that she had assumed it must have been that of maybe a young preteen. It was also beginning to get dark out and she described the car to the 911 dispatcher as a blue Camaro. 
As the light changed, she edged slowly forward while still talking to 911, hoping that Michael would pass her and she could get his license plate. But instead, he didn't move until she had passed him and then he slid in behind her. Now, I said this should have been the call to end Denise's nightmare, but a sequence of events sadly meant Denise's life. That call that Jane made was just slightly past the border of Sarasota County and Charlotte County. So her call actually went to the Charlotte County 911 call centre. Now, if you remember, Denise lived in Sarasota County, and although Charlotte County, where Denise's dad worked, were aware they weren't leading the investigation, and the 911 operators weren't fully up to speed with the details of the case. The 911 dispatcher, after a lot of toing and froing with Jane, realised that this was very likely to be Denise and not a child, and was relaying the information that Jane was giving her to another colleague in the call centre believing that they were passing it on to Sarasota County offices. Now, I listened to the 911 call and the whole thing is just a hot mess. Jane asking if she should follow him, the dispatcher talking to colleagues and Jane having to repeat herself, etc. Now, finally, the dispatcher says yes to following Michael, but it's too late. He makes an abrupt left turn and speeds back off toward Northport. Now, due to the traffic, Jane can't make the turn immediately, but tells the dispatcher that he had turned onto Toledo Blade Boulevard, heading towards Interstate 75. Now, by the time Jane makes the turn, she can no longer see the car. Now, this is huge, right? This is real-time location. And in that exact area, there are police on foot, there are patrol cars, there's a helicopter. But they had no idea they were so close because they never received the details of Jane's 911 call. The Charlotte County dispatchers had failed to provide them with the information. Now, we will come back to this. But at 9.15pm, a deputy and a state trooper were posted at the exact location, by coincidence, that Jane had told 911 about, Toledo Blade Boulevard. Unaware that three hours previous, Jane had called to say that that was the direction Denise's kidnapper had headed. Heading toward them was Michael's green Camaro. They immediately recognised it from the bolo, followed the car and forced it to stop. Now, Michael wouldn't get out of the car and it wasn't until after multiple attempts and a threat to shoot him that he finally listened. He was absolutely soaking wet from the waist down and his shoes were covered in mud. Police searched the car and found a muddy shovel and the phone that Denise had used to call 911. He'd removed the SIM card along with the battery but no Denise. He was immediately arrested and taken into custody and was charged with kidnapping, but refused to give the police any information about Denise or where she was. Now, he even tried to say that he had been kidnapped along with Denise and that they'd both been blindfolded and he had nothing to do with it. On January 19th, two days after Denise had been abducted and Michael arrested her naked body was found in a three-foot shallow grave laying in the fetal position, only a few miles from where Jane had made that final 911 call. She had a single gunshot wound to the head, and the medical examiner found aspirated blood in Denise's lungs, which would actually mean that Denise continued to breathe for a period of time after the shot was fired. Now, Jane Kowalski actually saw Michael's photo on the news the next day and recognised him as the man in the Camaro that she had called into police. 
She decided to phone the authorities and identify herself as the 6.30pm 911 caller and if they needed any information or whatever, she was willing to help. To her shock, they had no idea who she was. So as I mentioned, Charlotte County dispatchers had never passed on the information. The operator who had been on the phone to Jane claimed that she yelled out to a colleague to send a patrol unit to the location Jane had given. Now that colleague claims not to have heard or understood, both of them blaming shift changes and a chaotic environment for the mess up. Now like I said, I listened to that 911 call and you can hear so much commotion in the background. So I do understand that there was definitely chaos. However, in my opinion, that doesn't excuse it. Now, both were suspended without pay. Charlotte County Sheriff John Davenport came under huge attack for not firing them, but he defended their actions, simply calling it a missed opportunity and that there was no way of knowing if it would have made any difference in saving Denise's life. Now, you can imagine how sick to his stomach Denise's father, Rick, must have felt. That the same police department he had worked for was to blame for a hugely mishandled call. Personally knowing that there was patrol cars in the area, practically on that same road, I just think that if it had been passed to the police, Denise's life would have been saved. Now, the evidence against Michael was overwhelming. Denise's DNA was found both inside the car and in his house. His semen and Denise's blood on the duct tape binding his wrists together. Her shorts that were found near her body also contained Michael's semen. The medical examiner testified that the bruising he'd found on her body clearly showed that she had been brutally sexually assaulted. Her harrowing 911 call was played for the jury. And both Jane and Michael's cousin, Harold, testified against him. But ultimately, it was the evidence that Denise left that put the final nail in Michael's defence. It was almost like she knew that this was it. Her time was up, so she needed to do something to ensure that Michael would be caught. She pulled a couple of strands of her hair from the root, knowing that the root was what was needed to identify her DNA. And she hid them under the passenger seat. She then took off her most prized possession, the heart-shaped ring Nathan had given her just weeks into dating and that she had never taken off before. She lodged it between the backseat cushions. Now Nathan testified that the ring was pretty tight and could only be removed with effort. So it was 100% Denise's way to make sure that they knew she had been in that car. She fought so hard for her life, doing absolutely everything she could to alert anyone and everyone to her kidnap. And when she knew her end was near, she made sure her killer wouldn't get away with it. On August 28, 2009, after only two hours of deliberations, the jury found Michael King guilty of first-degree murder, sexual battery and kidnap. Nathan and Denise's father fought for the death penalty, and on December 4th of that same year, he was sentenced to death. Now, sickeningly, he filed an appeal in 2016, but thankfully the original sentence was upheld, and he is being held at Union Correctional Institution in Florida until his execution date is set. Now, shortly after Denise's death, Nathan started the Denise Amber Lee Foundation, which promotes better training around 911 calls to minimise human error in these call centres. 
The Denise Amber Lee Act was then signed into law, which requires emergency operators undergo 232 hours of 911 operator training. Nathan has dedicated his life to pushing for 911 reform and improving public safety, believing that Denise's murder was completely preventable. He's actually travelled all over the US speaking at 911 conferences. In 2012, he successfully sued the Charlotte County 911 department and received $1.25 million. You can find out more about the Denise Amber Lee Foundation at deniseamberlee.org. And although nothing will ever heal the pain for Denise's family, the faces of her two sons help them find solace and comfort. 